Hello and welcome back. I am glad you're tuning in and glad to tune in to the sponsorship of the University of Sydney's Brennan Mind Centre. Today's episode is with a fellow researcher, but also a previous podcast guest, Dr. Hayley LaMonica. If you remember, she was on previously talking about the Brain and Mind Centre's youth model. And today she's on with her new project, which is Thrive by Five. It, uh, we'll dive into it, but essentially the overview is equipping those of us around an individual who's under the age of five, uh, you know, from zero to five with the best possible skill sets and activities and things like that to help this young person thrive before the, the age of five. And the, essentially the concept around that is that before the age of five, there are some seriously major emotional and neurodevelopmental sort of checkpoints that influence how a child experiences the world and will be experienced by the world. And so it's about really giving them the best opportunity to sort of reach their, their full potential going forward in life. And a core foundation of, of that, like I said, is, is before the age of five. So it's, it, it's a really interesting conversation because we talk all things about culture and cultural diversity as well as countries and, and the differences between the, the differing of gender roles, the differing of socioeconomic levels and, and stages, as well as the role and the sort of hand governments can and do have, particularly noting throughout the episode that Haley and her team have been working or worked with prior and then after the government takeover of Afghanistan being the Taliban and the differences they then had to make, uh, the changes they had to make in the program for after the Taliban took over due to the role of, of women uh, in society and the role of women physically as well in society. And, and, and Hayley will get into that. And it's, it's, I think it's really interesting. I got a little teared up um, at one point because of just the whole project and how at the crux of it all, we are all the exact same, whether we are Western culture or, or not. And it's been, yeah, it's been, it was really lovely to sit down with Haley and, and talk about that. The last week for me has been all over the place. There's been multiple health appointments for my physical health. My, I, if you haven't heard, I, my, I have a two blood clotting disorders and, and uh, in November we discovered another blood clot. I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I'm not going to die on you, but it just means that there's been, you know, we've just had to investigate a lot more or more rigorously into what's been going on why is there a blood clot is it you know all of those sorts of things so there's been multiple appointments and and scans and things like that so as you can imagine that takes a toll on you know the differing or, or the other aspects of your life that don't just go on hold when <laughs> when a, a plate small falls and smashes so a bit of a juggling act this last week, but that's all right. That's, you know, I know it's only, it's nearing its end in that sense. Oh my gosh. Yawning uh, to, to show you <laughs> that I'm a bit tired, but I'm keen for the weekend. Voting this weekend uh, is always 
something that I find stressful, actually. I don't always know who to vote for. And, and my brother popped in the other night for a chat and he was like, part of me just does not like local voting. He's like, federal and state, totally get it. But I just don't understand local voting if, if we're not going to be staying in that, that community or that, that, that jurisdiction or, or district forever or even for a long period of time. Interestingly, kind of spurred a conversation on why can't people who are, who are residents, long-term residents of that area have more say than someone who, like myself, is merely a visitor who is there for the, the length of their lease, for example. So, yeah, it's still don't know who. Uh, got to look up all of those before, before voting this weekend. But, um, yeah, I'll stop boring you or... or telling tales of of my own week and let you jump into this week's episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Hayley. It is wonderful to welcome you back and to actually sort of, what has it been? It's been like two years to actually have you back on the podcast and, and to see and hear from you about a new research project that since talking about the Brain and Mind Center's youth model, you're now doing and leading and pass in the hallways and the elevators with. So (laughs) yeah, thank you so much for coming back. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So Mindaroo, the Mindaroo project, which I just found out is not actually the name of the project. (laughs) It's the name of the funder. You learn something new every day, right? Are you able to explain what the Mindaroo project is and and in brief and what your role is with the Mindaroo project? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Mindery Foundation is a very large philanthropic organization in Australia, so based in Perth, and they have wide-sweeping initiatives. So I think they have 11 different initiatives that they're championing through their organization. And the one that we're involved with is called Thrive by Five, which is all geared towards promoting healthy early childhood development in the first five years, so that Thrive by Five And so it really comes from quite a personal place with the chair and co-chair of Mindaroo that they really have, you know, they've raised children, they've lost children, um, and they really want to champion healthy early childhood development on, on a global scale as best they can. So they really want to ensure that all the little children around the world are able to have the opportunity to meet their full developmental potential. So that's sort of the underpinning of where the Thrive by Five project originated. And our role um, at the Brain and Mind Center is to develop the content for what's referred to as the Thrive by Five International Program, um, which, again, has three different sort of parts. So there's a TED Talk, which was developed by Mindery Foundation. And then there's the Thrive by Five app, which is really the flagship of the overarching program. And there's what's referred to as the Thrive by Five content. And the the reason those two are separate is that while the app is the flagship, we still recognize that around the world, there, there is still this digital divide. And while we can reach a lot of people through the internet and through smartphones, we can't reach everyone. So we're looking, we're always looking into other means of disseminating the content, which is why the content is kind of separate. Um, (laughs) So it might, again, be through digital means, but sort of lower levels of tech, so SMS or WhatsApp, but it might also be sort of of through more traditional um, methods like radio and television and through healthcare centers and that kind of thing. 
So our role, yeah, as I said, is really developing that content, which both goes into the app, but also might be created in other formats as well. Because that's, I, I mean, you know, we're part of the youth mental health and d- technology, digital technology team, or, or I can't, yeah, <laughs> youth mental health and technology yeah, team. Yeah, you got it. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Uh, so that like 10 times really fast. It's interesting because when you were just talking about like the three kinds of dissemination and the app obviously being one, we often are calling for something to be an app. In a couple of weeks time, we'll be hearing from a fellow colleague, Frank Yofiano, who is all about like this this digital platform and, and the calling for it being an app or the, the progression of it turning into an app. Spoilers. And, but then it's almost like you're going back to basics in a sense here. And I mean, I, over the course of the projects that I've been on, not just at the BMC, but more so as a commissioner, there has been going to sort of more rural and remote areas, tech like text messages, or there was community in outside of Broome, two hours north of Broome called Beagle Bay. And they actually have their um, their own laws or their own, their actual sanctioned laws. Like they're the only town in Australia that has this. Anyways, look it up. They're, they're brilliant. They're really, and they have the most gorgeous church that is gilded in mother of pearl and, and like, the white contrast to the to the burnt terracotta ground is incredible. I digress, but the, they even called for PDFs to be to be able to be printed off like a, a physical handout. So to know that like that's still happening, and, it, and it's a good reminder that people are still inaccessible or have only the accessibility to do, to those things is is really beneficial. And I think one of the things with this project that we've also thought about is particularly around gender roles. So one of the first countries that we started to engage with was Afghanistan. And that was actually pre-August 2021. Um, oh, for anyone, that's when the Taliban took took correct. over. Yeah. So we yeah. actually engaged on both sides of that. And, wow. you know, we learned that there was a lot of access to technology, a lot of access to smartphones, but those were often largely restricted to use by men. So Women might find one and try to share it together as a group to be able to access the internet. You know, women often do find a way, as we say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But again, just thinking about how we might reach those people that might, you know, technically be able to have a smartphone, but due to different um, norms, social norms within a country, maybe um, may have restrictions imposed on them as well. So those are just other things that we're thinking about. To sort of like... That's really, for me, that's really hard hitting or like hits me hard, particularly as I move and shake within a Western culture and a Western society and have grown up in that and with the values and the, the consciousness of gender roles and, and non-gendered roles and things like that. For you, yourself and the research team, has it been really hard managing the cultural chafing, if you will, between things like you know, where women may be the target, but their their gatekeepers are the men, and being able to, I guess, I guess, being able to somehow respect, but also 
yeah, work out those. <laughs> I don't know how to. We have a lot of a lot of debrief um, sessions and a lot of um, yeah, just internal discussions as we sort of all I think are developing more and more understanding of how culture um, and ethnicity and language and all of these things impact on how we engage with technology. So I think one of the core tenets that um, of the program is that the content that we're developing always has to be culturally adapted um, to the context in which we're working. So we very much recognize, and this was, you know, one of the big things right from the beginning, we very much recognize that we can't create Thrive by Five, you know, full stop. It has to be Thrive by Five for Indonesia and Thrive by Five for Kenya and Thrive by Five for Afghanistan. So one of the first things we do as a team is, and we we try to always partner with um, another academic at the university who really has country-specific expertise um, so this has led to partnerships with the law faculty and the Southeast Asia um, Center and, and different groups around the university. So we're always trying to draw on the strengths of the university. But then we do this really deep dive into the literature to understand the cultural, the historical, the social, the political, the economic, the gender-based factors that impact on child rearing. So it's a really in-depth process that we try to understand, you know, what does a family look like? Is it a nuclear family? Is it a multi-generational family? How is that evolving over time? Does that look different in rural communities than it does in um, urban settings? You know, are parents migrating? Are, are children being raised by grandparents? All of these kinds of things. We're trying to really understand that sociocultural context before we even engage with parents and caregivers in those countries. So that's sort of our first step. But we also work directly. So in, in all the countries in which we're working, um, which I think is 12 at this point, there's always a... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With all of those cultural differences and nuances, Sometimes huge. It's hard to keep track of what's happening where. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good that we're writing documents to refer of to. <laughs> happening in my life, let alone, you know, 12 different countries. Yeah, yeah so, um, but... Um, Mindrew always um, partners with at least one um, in-country organization. It might be part of the government. It might be an NGO. And so that group really helps um, then bring on board. So they themselves, but then also they work to bring on board a group of subject matter experts with, you know, expertise in early childhood development, education, medicine, psychology, anthropology. And again, that group really sort of serves as a board of advisors for us to help kind of validate all of that thinking around the social cultural context. Um, so again, we're, we're really trying to be as thorough as possible to ensure that what we're developing is culturally appropriate and relevant, and it's actually going to be meaningful. We don't want this to just be, you know, a Western approach coming in. We recognize that <laughs> we're not doing a lot of things right in the Western world, and we actually should be learning from, you know, a lot of the countries we're working in are quite traditionally collectivist societies where it's more of a, you know, the it takes a village approach to raising children. And we really want to champion that and actually think that that's, we should be doing more of that in Western cultures. So we actively in, try to in, uh, sort of encourage the involvement, just not of mom. It's often mom, but not just mom. We want dads involved. We want grandparents. We want aunties and uncles. We want, you know, your favorite neighbor, all of those kinds of things. We respect the fact that all of these people can be quality caregivers um, and really help support uh, the development of a, of a young child. And, and they can really help reduce some of the burden and stress that we often hear from moms, particularly with a lot of them 
needing to be in the workforce now. You know, there hasn't been any reduction in their burden in the home in terms of child-rearing responsibilities, but many of them are now working full or part-time as well. So we're trying to, yeah, again, sort of reinforce that these other caregivers can help support moms. So a little bit of apologies. I feel like I just dumped a lot of information on you. (laughs) No, no, it's good because one of the, I was going to ask a question, which you sort of just before the sort of the the varying and and the changing roles of child rearing or child rearing roles, not changing or responsibilities. Anyways, just before that, you kind of answered a question that I had in the back of my mind about, you know, have you found that the the research and the literature that you've been reading up on and the the collaborations you've been sort of in the background pre-entering and, and engaging with those peoples and communities on the ground, have you ever found there's been where things are just incongruent with what's actually happening? Like the the literature and the research is kind of like gets to a certain to a certain point, but it hasn't prepared you for perhaps something else that you're like shit, I did not, like, where was this in the the handout? Yeah, I think for me, it's been more about the difference between, you know, as researchers, we're reading numbers all the time. We're always looking at stats and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's actually seeing the realities of what that those statistics mean or look like or, you know, yeah, what the face is on the ground. So I think, you know, we... we we conduct most of our workshops online via Zoom, and that that's amazing. I think COVID has taught us that we can do a lot via Zoom. Not not always for the better, um, but it certainly yeah. allowed yeah. us. To do, Love it. <laughs> it certainly allowed us to be actively engaging with parents in a lot of really diverse settings, and in that way, you can actually see, like, you can see the environment in which the school is in, or wherever people are coming together. And sometimes that's really difficult to see that. It, you know, the, the environment, you know, the, the level of poverty, seeing, you know, poor nutrition actually in, in real life, those kinds of things coming to life. And it was always a blessing and a curse. I, I, many mothers who participated, they would often bring their children because they didn't have anyone else to, to care for them. But I actually thought that that was so appropriate. These are the children that we're trying to have an impact for. And you could see the interaction, you could see the affection, you could see everyone's trying to do their best. And I think seeing it in that environment really reinforces why this program is so important and the real potential for impact that we have. I don't know why, but that kind of, I'm not a crier at all, but that's kind of got me a bit wellied, like welled up, not wellied. (laughs) I don't know how I'd get wellied on that, but that's, I think that's incredibly touching in the sense that this is, it's not, and it, it links back to what you were saying before that a basic thrive by five cannot be rolled out as a blanket program that it needs to be tailored and co-designed and workshopped and flexible with the, the people on the ground who are, who are going to be using it or who are going to be educated by it. And then having that reminder in the room that, you know, this, this kid or these kids that are that are in the room who you're trying to create the most benefit for and who you are trying to support externally by passing on this this knowledge and this research for these mothers and these carers is just yeah it's in, it's kind of incredible and i think that it's really wonderful that there is this 
my mind's kind of jumping around, but I think there's the, the notion that white saviorship or Western saviorship is something that you're actively trying to not, is, is a steed you don't want to come in on, um, that this lowly, humble sort of side of things where it's like we want to meet you where you were at. Yeah, and I think the workshops are, are again, it's really an opportunity to, to hear from parents what are the challenges that they're facing and, you know, what information we can provide that's going to be of most value. But for me, also, one of my favorite questions is to, to just ask what's the favorite, what's your favorite activity to do with your child? Because I think that actually tells us so much about, you know, is it the one mom loved, you know, dress up or is it going for a walk to the market? Or I just think it gives you a real sense of the dynamic, the relationship, the environment in a really simple question. Yeah. So that's been really lovely. I think often to start with that just as a warm up of what do you love? And you often get kind of surprising, but wonderful answers. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is um, in all of the content, we're always trying to include examples of local songs, local dances, children's storybooks and um, authors or folk tales or, you know, anything that's going to make it feel more familiar to the, you know, the parents in that specific context. So they say, oh, yeah, that's the, you know, festival I always go to every year. Or that's, I remember that from when I was a kid reading that book with my mom, those kinds of things to bring it to life. And just by asking parents what, you know, what are your favorite activities, you get a lot of that and it just makes it real. So you get a lot of those those um, little details and those little bits of content um, that we can include, again, to increase the localization of the content. Yeah. So Thrive by Five generally, I guess it's kind of like a, if you haven't, if listeners haven't heard of Living Works, they're a global organization that delivers the number one first aid, suicide prevention. And so they're just, they're brilliant. But, and I know a number of people who work work for and, and are them, I guess, essentially. But they've got a program called the iAssist and, and the iAssist program is like a blueprint. It's like a frame or a structure. And then they tailor, they work with whatever community or group of people to then tailor that to have this, the deliverables that are like the necessary things or the key findings to then be more relatable, to be implementable, to be created and owned by that community group or people and that kind of reminds me of this and and I guess also we heard from or continue here from the BHP project and that idea of it being this this structure or this this notion of these is these are the findings etc but how do we actually make that appropriate and usable by you the community the people and so I think that that's really cool what long-winded going around to my question what what is the I guess the the core sort of program of Thrive by Five and and what does that sort of do to change hope to change etc yeah absolutely so what we're looking to do is empower parents with the information they need about healthy early childhood development and really to highlight the importance of these first five years I think what we've learned is there's a real gap in understanding that, you know, before a child develops language and is, is more, you know, has, is showing you more of their personality, you actually have a responsibility as a caregiver and an opportunity as a caregiver to engage with that child, to stimulate them, to nurture them. 
And there's really just a lack of understanding. It's it's just, you know, there's just not the knowledge out there that these five years are a critical period of development. So we're trying to ensure that everyone, all parents, wherever they are, have access to this type of um, information, one, and then that they get some really practical activities that they can engage in um, with their child or, you know, the grandparents can or people in the community can, again, highlighting this sort of a collective approach to raising a child. So really practical activities that we um, have designed to not need a lot of resources. So, you know, we're trying to avoid any costs to parents and that really we think can fit as well as we can into, you know, a busy day-to-day schedule. We're often hearing, you know, primarily from the moms, just how busy they are and how they can't imagine fitting anything else in. So, yeah, so we're, we're trying to create activities that can, can fit into a busy day or actually can be done as part of activities that we all just have to get done. So, for example, cooking. There's lots of opportunities in cooking to teach about language to teach about math. So you can talk about different measurements. You can teach about your culture, right? So you can talk about, you know, the history behind the dish that you're making. So even in just a simple activity that we all have to do, um, you know, you got to get dinner on the table. (laughs) There's lots of ways to engage in a really quality way with the child to promote that aspect of development. So the the content itself, we refer to as collective actions. Um, Again, it's that highlighting that collective. And so each collective action is then comprised of what we call the why, which is the scientific information about a particular aspect of development that we try to present in simple, lay, approachable language. And then each of those whys is then coupled with one or more child-rearing activities um, that, again, anyone can do with the child to try to help stimulate that aspect of development. So at this point, I think we are, we're up to 124 different collective actions. So they're, they're grouped um, into different areas. So it's about, you know, learning communication skills, learning social skills, learning about your culture and your identity, learning, uh, you know, just physical development and health, you know, those kinds of things. So they're grouped in different ways and they're, they're grouped by different age groups as well, because certainly not everything that's going to be appropriate for an infant is going to be appropriate for a, <laughs> a four-year-old. So we try to provide some guides about the age ranges that, that are appropriate for children as well. So I think one of the really cool things about the content is we're always developing new content based on the co-design workshops and what we're hearing from parents in each country. And while there's a lot of consistency, which I find, you know, we're just not that different, right? There's a lot of consistency in what parents need. You know, they they all want to figure out <laughs> how to get their kid to sleep. <laughs> they all want to promote, um, you know, the cognitive, cognitive development of their children. They want them to be respectful of elders, kind to others. And oftentimes they want to identify, a, you know, a special skill or a talent that their children has that they can help them foster and develop. So there's a lot of consistency. But then again, in each country that we go into, there's something unique. And that's, I think, where we have an opportunity then to really help that community of parents to develop content specifically for them. So I'm thinking of, again, you know, I often go back to Afghanistan because we went back into the country in terms of conducting some workshops after the government fell. And 
you know, we heard we needed to make some adaptations to the content to make sure that everything could be safely conducted inside. So where we might have been encouraging people to go out to a park or, you know, to, to explore the neighborhood, that kind of thing, we, we were told that all of the activities needed to have as much as possible an indoor alternative as parents and children were largely restricted to the home. And for, just for those who don't know, why, why was the restriction within the home? Yeah, so I think that, I think people would probably be aware that after the fall of the government, the rights of women have um, steadily deteriorated in Afghanistan. And so my understanding, and it, you know, I don't have a full understanding, but my understanding is that women really aren't allowed to leave the home without um, a male escort. So women really are restricted to the home, and that's you know where they're raising their children. So we had some really creative ideas from some of the Afghan experts that we worked with. We had one father who had transformed one of his indoor rooms into a bit of a sort of, <laughs> you could, he, he had, I think sort of padded the walls so they could still play pretty physical ball games Sports and things and like that. Center. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he, he had created an area where they could still sort of try to play cricket and, and things like that in indoors um, to keep them safe, but to, to still allow them to have some physical activity. So that, that was the Afghan context. You know, I think about in Kenya and Namibia, there was, again, a lot of consistency in what we were hearing with parents wanting support, um, parents and particularly other caregivers like grandparents wanting support where children had experienced the loss of a parent or the loss of both parents um, due to the HIV AIDS crisis or more recently COVID. So how can they work to help a child, you know, cope with that grief? And similarly, and I thought this was really beautiful, you know, there's there's so much diversity in African countries and both groups that we worked with were really keen to try to understand how to help um, promote inclusion um, of diversity and acceptance of diversity in their young children. So that was one of the things that we developed content around as well for the Namibian and Kenyan context. And as you can imagine, those, you know, in the countries that we've gone into since, those um, that content still is applicable. But you get these really powerful ideas from the parents in each country as we're working along. That's really cool. I mean, you know, there's that English proverb that necessity is the mother of invention. So, you know, hear, hearing about the homemade sports and rec center in order to enable that, you know, the best for your kid. I mean, like you were saying before and, and sort of just reiterated, we are not that dissimilar. Like, of course, there's, you know, different ways of raising children. There's different ways of loving or caring for children. There's different, you know, family structures. It's no longer uh, like neuro, uh, neuro family. No, nuclear family. (laughs) Knew it was with a a new, but there is so much variation, but those first five years essentially are still the same for every child. I remember there being this advertisement, I think it was like early 2000s for, well, not for racism, against racism. Um, and it, it it was like a meme on the internet sort of advertisement and it was it was two hearts, two, two dissected hearts and um, they looked exactly the same and it was... That I think some tagline or something was one of these hearts is a black man's and the other is a white man's and, and essentially just showed that 
our internal workings, our functions, everything is the exact same typically. And I mean, I know from my sister-in-law and brother who have just, I think their kid Tommy is going on nine months. It's that time, like nine months having just gone is so wild in the amount of things that, you know, we're now aware of that changes and happens and the emotional, the neurodevelopmental, all of that. I mean, like I said to them the other day, his cries are now the cry of a little boy. It's not the cry of a baby anymore. And so even even those notions that, you know, that are constantly changing to then have the overarching, whether it be the government or whether it be the cultural expectations or whether it be the socioeconomic expectations that need you to be at work or need, you know, the, the parent rearer to be a main majority parent at work as well and all of that, to then have that placed on top of those changes that, yeah, just are happening blindly to us is just incredible to know that there's now a program, Thrive by Five, that can actually support those parents and those those communities, those villages raising that child or those children around them. Yeah, it's a pretty um pretty exciting and ambitious project to be um, a part of. So I'm I'm yeah I'm thrilled. I learn something new every day, um, whether it be about child development or different countries or cultures. And it's been a really interesting process because I I I see culture so much more or the impact of culture so much more in my life. And I think the the most recent example is my husband and I were just having a lazy Friday night. And went a bit old school and started watching um, Coming to America. Um, I'm much older than you, Sam, oh, yeah. so I don't know if you've seen it, but it's an old Eddie Murphy. Yeah, classic. no, it's classic. And, you know, yeah. um, and there's this giant, like really large, elaborate African dance scene. And I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder if this is from a specific country or from a specific tribe. I wonder if the dance actually would be conducted at a marriage ceremony. I wonder if the dress means something. It's just, you start to see, you know, that there's so much meaning in these things that we may have just taken for granted. I mean, I know I wouldn't have thought about that the first time I saw it coming to America. And it just, it makes you really think so deeply around culture and the impact on culture on growing up on, you know, on, parenting on what you want for your own children on, you know, how you engage with others, how you, you know, see your opportunities from a work perspective and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's, it starts to become, um, yeah, it's just pervasive, I think, in my thought process. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's so cool. I mean, similar to that film is a film that I recently, I went to the cinema and watched it with, uh, I went with my mum and we both were laughing out loud and also wondering why the rest of the cinema weren't laughing out loud. <laughs> uh, I think it was Pension Day. Oh, no, that's really bad. Um, uh, <laughs> put my foot in it there. Um, no, it was, it was, it was um, What's Love Got to Do With It? And if you haven't seen the trailer, it's, it's a classic British rom-com. It's got total love actually vibes. So like early 2000s British rom-com sort of nostalgia. And it's about these boy, boy next door, girl next door, who one is in a very, uh, very culture-based um, Indian family and the other is just a classic uh, single mother 
British Caucasian family, both both English families as well to sort of make that point. And one of them goes down the route of arranged marriage and the other, she's a documentarian and she's having this, she's got this love life that is just fleeing here and there and she's not satisfied and everything. And, and the it follows the process of her as a documentarian documenting his finding of love through arranged marriages. And it was you really go along with her in the sense kind of like what you were sort of experiencing with coming to America of like having this like sort of very much like, oh, okay, that's you do you <laughs> sort of a, a notion, a very individualist sort of thinking until you actually start to actually unpack it. And I understand, you know, these varying situations, like even when it comes to the first meeting of the the couples how there's like the the formal engagement for all the parents and the the extended family to meet and it's very much rigid or or tight and then afterwards it's all the young people and it's this whole different experience and you see people who are very much reserved become these bigger than life people who you're like yeah they're no different to me like anyways so it, it is really interesting to sort of see a different culture even in that, let alone actually being being able to work with the differences in culture to then not only uh, impa- uh, uh, not only to enhance the program but also to you, you yourself selfishly get to learn and understand. 100%. And- that's, what I, that's what I, yeah, I just learn all the time and it's fascinating. It's such a privilege. Yeah, it really is. What has been actually, what has been the biggest impact for either yourself or or the rest of the Mindaroo team from this current body of work? Oh, gosh, I don't know that I can choose one. I mean, first, just thinking (laughs) about the team. (laughs) First, just thinking about our team. I mean, I'm I'm so lucky um, with the team that we've put together to work on this project. People come from really diverse backgrounds, but, you know, both uh, just uh, personally, but also from a professional standpoint. So, you know, I myself am a neuropsychologist. We have another clinical psychologist. We have an anthropologist. We have someone with a background in human-computer interactions and computer science. We've got um, economics, political science, you know, just really diverse um, backgrounds. And so I, I find that I'm learning you know, something new every day, whether it be approach to research or, you know, how you might interpret research or, you know, something that, you know, we had a meeting yesterday and something that I kind of said, I didn't find that very interesting. Another person was like, that's, I found it fascinating. And this is why that's so cool. I think it's just really cool to have diverse um, opinions right from the get-go and everything that we're doing. I think it only makes the research and the project itself stronger. And then I think, I don't know that it's a learning. It's just, uh, again, it's, I think the, mo- the best thing for me is just getting to work with the parents um, and the caregivers. You know, yes, it's been through Zoom um, <laughs> and I'd love to be in the same room with them. But um, I think hearing from them either, you know, what they need and what, you know, what, you know, problem we might make a small move towards helping them solve day to day or, you know, on the flip side, when things have been, when, you know, when the app and the content have been implemented in a country, what impact is it actually having? And that, you know, we've heard, we've heard these amazing stories about, you know, one mom was talking about how she'd engaged with um, in, in some of the activities with her son and he was, you know, developing greater independence. And I think sometimes there's a worry about that in some countries that, you know, you don't necessarily want to promote too much independence in your child. 
But the way that it actually translated was that then he actually wanted to contribute more independently, but to the family and to help her more. And so it's this, you know, the the sort of collectivist individualist dichotomy is not that simple. And there's, you know, there's room for these independent little people <laughs> um, to also be contributing from a family perspective. So I think that was amazing. And then, you know, just other things that we probably take for granted. You know, my mom was a first grade teacher. She read to me all the time, as did my dad. That was always the nighttime bedtime ritual. But in a lot of countries, you know, reading is not really a, it's just not part of the culture. And so we hear from parents that just understanding how much exposing children to, to words, how much value that can have in terms of their development. It's been really powerful. And then in another rural village, we heard from a mom that she was able to use just the simple hand-washing information. She, she was able to control a diary, diarrhea outbreak in a village using that. So you, you just see the different ways that you're having an impact. And it may not be the things that we think we're going to impact, <laughs> but it's um, that that's pretty impactful. And then I think the other thing has been watching the uptake and the adoption and the championing of the content at the local level. And so seeing for whom it's been impactful and how they then become our champions on the ground, whether it be through social media or through, you know, parent groups or just you know, uh, talking about it, um, we, we have this really powerful group of people on the ground that just become our little army of, of champions, which is um, really amazing to see. That's, I, I must admit, I've been, over the years, I've been involved in a number of projects and whether they be design or, or mental health based, and that's one of the coolest things to see because you tirelessly work over something and, and then to see someone else take it up and, and champion it without you prompting them or slipping them a, a tenor on the side. <laughs> like, and I, I think you can only describe, well, you can't really describe the feeling and you don't really know what it's like until you do experience it because it's this sense of pride, not in yourself, but in this creation you've, you've partaken, partook in making. And I think that's, that's so awesome to hear that there is that uptake on the ground and that people on the ground are like, yeah, this is, this is so us. This is what we need. Look at what I've been able to do with it. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. And on the flip side, I will just say, you know, we're always also looking for their, their criticisms, right, um, of the app because we're always in this, um, you know, this is one of the beauty, beautiful things about technology in particular is that you can adapt it. So if we've gotten something really wrong, we always have the opportunity also to optimize it, whether it's the, you know, the features and the functions or the content itself. So um, actually, it's important to highlight with Thrive by Five that we're actually conducting an evaluation study. So with most digital health solutions, and, and this includes those in the parenting space, there's no evaluation of usability or effectiveness. So there's just this sort of proliferation of parenting apps that are out there. And we have no concept of whether they're effective or you know, potentially even detrimental. And so we're, we're actually researching the impact of the content on parenting practices, behaviors, knowledge, the confidence of parents, um, and how it might shape um, or influence, you know, the strength of the connection between a parent and a child, the child and their broader family, the child and their community, the child and their culture. So we're going beyond implementation. It's important to, you know, to highlight that piece. 
And we're going to have the opportunity to feed the learnings back from that evaluation into the app, into the content. So we're always working to um, iteratively refine and optimize it again, but really through this collaborative process with the people on the ground. Yeah, that feedback loop is more important than some people often think, like, and the constant feedback loop, right? Like situations change, like, you know, you never know. The the government could change over in Afghanistan and therefore things could change from a rollout perspective or from an action-based perspective. There's, I mean, COVID, who would have predicted that? And therefore, you know, that's enabled positive changes like Zoom or things like that, but also has enabled other really hard things. And so I think, yeah, I'm personally, I'm starting to learn from, you know, the the backend side, how integral that constant feedback loop is in the changing. And and like you said, with technology, it's not like you've built a building and and you have to tear a wing down, it's you just tear a coding down or or you reroute something. It, it's not that that hard or that arduous. And and I guess, you know, if it really means it'll impact greater, then no task is too small, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you so much. That's this has been I think it's been really interesting because I mean I'm not a parent. I have a dog, but I refuse to be called a, a fur baby owner or, or father or whatever there. <laughs> Some of those terms go out around. But sort of seeing, you know, my my brothers and sister-in-laws sort of bring up their children and, and hearing stories of when I was brought up and seeing friends bring up their children, it is so interesting, you know, particularly because we have so much access to access and freedom, I, I would say, to information and uh, mobilities of parenting and parenting styles. And and in the Western world, very much empowered with whatever we choose to use, do, how, where, whenever, by whoever, I guess as well. So being able to listen to Thrive by Five and hearing about the constraints you one could say the constraints that are placed on uh, parents who are trying to raise or, or villagers who are trying to raise these children um, by culture or government and the way in which we're able to or Thrive by Five is able to get around that in order to give within the constraints or within the culture the best opportunity for these kids to be thriving by the age of five has been really wonderful and something that I really hope we get to follow along and, and check in in however many months, years, time and, and find out how it's all going. So thank you so much, Haley. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's been a pleasure. 